Hi, and welcome to Why Do We Do That, a psychology podcast that deconstructs human behavior from the perspectives of social scientists, psychologists, and others that use applied psychology in their work. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Moyer. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Todd Kajden. Todd is a psychology professor and founder of the Wellbeing Lab at George Mason University. He's produced over 200 peer-reviewed journal articles on well-being and resilience, psychological flexibility, meaning and purpose in life, curiosity, and managing social anxiety. In 2013, he was awarded the Distinguished Early Career Researcher Award by the American Psychological Association, and his research has been featured in hundreds of media outlets, including multiple articles in the Harvard Business Review, New York Times, and Forbes. He's authored five books, including Curious, The Upside of Your Dark Side, Designing Positive Psychology, and his latest book and topic of our conversation, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. I thought it was very interesting how Todd, both in his book and in our conversation, demonstrates a very positive view of rebellion. Whereas I, being a rule follower since childhood, am more likely to see rebellion as a selfish gesture that ignores the will of the group. That being said, I quickly realized that principled insubordination is very different from rebellion just for rebellion's sake. This distinction is crucial because it seems as though we are living in a time full of social unrest that is driven by unclear or in some cases almost non-existent principles. I think the greatest value found in Todd's book is the use of history to demonstrate how important it is for groups possessing minority viewpoints to view their opponents as potential allies in the future. Personally, I'm not a big proponent of activism in the form of sign-waving or marching in public. It feels like more of an effort to belong to part of a group rather than to enact some sort of specific articulated change. Thankfully, Todd offers a variety of strategies to help groups become more effective at spreading their message and also some ways to be a better member of the majority. If you are in the midst of an uphill battle to change minds, you should definitely pay close attention to what Todd has to say. Enjoy. All right. Now, joining me today is Todd Kajden. Uh, Thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, So uh, we're going to be talking today about insubordination. The title of your new book is The Art of Insubordination. Uh, how to dissent and defy effectively. What inspired you to explore this topic? Uh, the book, you know, ties together uh, a bunch of different areas of psychology, attitudes and beliefs, persuasion, uh, group behavior. Uh, what inspired you to package this all together to look at insubordination? I love how you deconstructed a few of these components here. Um, you could add in emotion regulation and personality. I mean, for me is th- this journey started six years ago where I, I decided of, there was a question that I had of the literature and it wasn't my area of study directly, which was if you lack power and status or you have a marginalized identity, what are the rules for being persuasive and influential? 
other because you, you don't have the platform to get things going. And I spent six years reading the literature and realized nobody's been talking about this line of work in, in any, any way of selling it to the consumers outside of the academy. And during these six years, this is pre-Trump, this is pre-COVID, you have a number of sociological trends that were happening. And, and you start seeing is that the average person holds 12 jobs over the course of their adult lifetime, that the, the average age of a parent in, keeps on increasing with every cohort. Um, you know, the rise of social media, the increase of political intolerance, the increase of political certainty, the increase of political polarization, um, the social mobility where most people now live nowhere close to their family and friends. Right. So you put these and other sociological trends together and you're like, there's a lot of problematic and interesting social behaviors that are happening. What can you do to if you recognize there's dysfunction and things aren't working to actually change things. And I wanted to create a manual for exactly for exactly how people can do this based on the best science. So you discuss all kinds of different uh, barriers to, uh, to, to, you know, sort of effectively dissent. Um, where do, where do we start? What is the, what is the reason why most dissent efforts fail? The reason most dissent efforts fail is you have to think about at the group level, there are a few norms that keep that keep functioning at its highest level. So one of them is the norm that we're gonna have harmony, we're gonna have cohesion, we're gonna be positive, and this thing called locomotion, which is we can you can think about this as firefighters. If there's a fire somewhere in the neighborhood, the, the, at the firehouse, when that alarm goes off how quickly can people get into the fire truck and move towards the actual fire? So that's locomotion, speed of coordination. And groups that have dissenters, the cost is you slow down coordination and you slow down this locomotion. So goals take longer to acquire any type of effort, much less progress that happens. And if you're thinking about quality as well as efficiency for a group, Descent is one of these things where we could talk about the benefits, but it has a trade-off and the cost is it slows the speed down of coordination, increases the amount of effort and things become more high maintenance. It takes more energy than required to have interactions in a group when everyone's not in agreement. So you bring up one of these, um, one of these repeating themes on this show, which is that we have these sort of, uh, mechanisms from our evolution that support that support some function that don't work as well in modern times. And it sounds like this sort of group cohesion was was very important to early ancestors and survival. And now when it comes to modern day, when we're trying to, you know, simply express an idea that goes against the norm, we bump into these same you know, the same, uh, the same pushback that you would get in, in pre-human times. Um, what, what is so different about now that, that would, uh, you know, cause so much friction? Yeah, I mean, to some degree, the evolutionary lens is a good one, is the goals are more abstract. The outcomes are more abstract. I mean, think about a 12-person jury that's going to decide the fate, whether someone goes to prison or not. So what the most important aspect of this is the outcome and the quality of the decision. 
So it, but from the perspective of the individuals who are on the jury, just random characters that are chosen from because they've been assigned this their local government, their objective is it is it arms with the objective of a good jury. So while a quality decision is great for the person who's being potentially sentenced for the jury, it's how do I get out of here as quick as possible and back to my life? And I want this to be as, as non-boring as possible. Mm-hmm. So there's, there are competing ends in terms of making something quick and painless and making something where I don't care how long it takes, the idea of someone innocent being put into jail is incredibly problematic. The idea of someone of someone going to jail who is an innocent is incredibly problematic. And if we have to wait this out for three months, um, it's worth it. And with dissent, so Charlene Nemeth did this research about dissent in jury trials. And what she found was, is that if a single person dissents and everybody disagrees with them and the dissenter is totally off with their remarks, what it does is, is it increases the propensity of the other 11 people on the jury to seek out more and different information to make their decisions and spend more time thinking about the quality of their arguments, even if the dissenter is completely wrong in their logic. And that's kind of a a great illustration where we have an inefficiency, but it leads to better high quality outcomes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you're sort of tiptoeing around uh, this, idea of conformity that as being one of these issues. Could you talk about uh, conformity in terms of how it acts on individuals uh, moving in a, in a sort of marketplace of ideas? Yeah, there's, there's a new model by Justin Thibault, I'm probably pronouncing his name wrong, where it talks about conformity is this beautiful pro-social act where because you care about other people's welfare and their well-being, you're going to act in a predictable manner. And then the other people that you interact with, they need less energy for this interaction. It's easier for them to come up with a response to whatever you did next. And everything is smooth, smooth and relatively effortless. So it's not just at the individual level. It's, it's essentially, it's a gift that you're giving someone. So if I was to answer your question and say, ice cream and potatoes, and pause, I leave you with this incredibly difficult social situation where you don't know where to pick up and how to, how to work with that content. You know, I might've had a, it sound would sound like I had a stroke in the middle of our conversation. And so conformity allows for less effort expenditure by every party that's in this social interaction that happens there. So at the, and at the group level, the more conformity there is, the greater the degree to which people feel good about what they're doing, and they can work towards a common goal. And there's, there's the pain pleasure ratio is in place where you have greater, greater happiness, greater engagement, greater sense of meaning. And none of those three things have anything to do with is the actual performance less or worse as a function of being happier, engaged and have meaning there. Now you also mention, in addition to conformity, uh, and you you mentioned it at the top, which was the status quo, um, and that there's there is uh, an incentive uh, cognitively to uh, f- to support whatever the existing system is. Right, uh, it speaks to a line of research on a topic that's called system justification. So, 
could you talk about what a system is and how it influences uh, our our motives in terms of of you know stances on on what is good, what is moral? Yeah, to some degree, we can think of systems as just situational context, and so even when you think about personality, right? You've got Susan Cain's work, which has elevated the importance of being, being an introverted person is not necessarily a cost. It's often a benefit in some certain situations. Having people that contemplate more deeply before they talk, having people that actually spend time learning something before they offer an opinion. Uh, this is a value as opposed to an extroverted person who's more gregarious and more likely you kind of blurt out information in a social interaction. You'd want a nice balance of introverts and extroverts in a social situation. The problem with that model, that framework, is it ignores that whether or not we are introverted or extroverted is not necessarily stable. It depends on what situation we're in. And so, for example, for myself, I tend to be extremely extroverted, except for the bizarre scenario when I'm in formal dinners with large numbers of people. And there's something about the constrained way where there's people at the left, the right of me and in front of me are my, not my preferred social interaction partners, but the ones I'm constrained to kind of make eye contact with and talk to. There's something about that rigid arrangement that makes me or more introverted than extroverted. And everyone who's listening probably has domains or situations where their personality in some way perverts itself in a different way because it brings out certain sides of who they are. They're more conscientious maybe around their parents than they are than they're with their friends. They're more open-minded when they're around people of a different race than they are with people who are a bit of, a, of the same race. And one of the beauties of psychology is learning what is your profile of personality attributes in particular situations. And in the same vein, when you think about focus, do you agree or disagree with the conventional mainstream thinking in a system? It's going to be influenced by what that system is. And so you have a system in the workplace, you have a system in your household, you have a system in your neighborhood, you have a system in your, your social group, and you have a system when you're around strangers. And each one of us has a profile of the degree to which we are going to deviate and feel comfortable deviating from the conventional majority of thinking in those groups. And it's not gonna look the same across the board. So in the book, you talk about, uh, in terms of dissent, you, you focus on this idea of principled dissent. So when you're in these situations that, you know, there is sort of a, uh, there is sort of, um, uh, or, you know, disagreement just for disagreement's sake or just to forward one's own agenda. But, you know, principled dissent or principled insubordination uh, is sort of what you're focusing on, which is when you have, you know, some sort of deeply held belief or you have an observation about norms that you think isn't morally correct. Um, now, my question for you is that, isn't it the case that the degree to which insubordination is principled, isn't that just decided by the majority to begin with, right? Uh, you know, some uh, it makes sense on the surface to have a, a belief driving insubordination, but 
oftentimes the the value or the or the um legitimacy of that belief is determined by the majority which makes it sort of it, it kind of murkies the water to determine the difference between principled versus non-principled insubordination uh i love where you're going with this so i think this is at the heart where people have their biggest challenges is who gets to decide what's principled and what's not principled and who in their right mind thinks that they're engaging in unprincipled dissent except for a bunch of rowdy teenagers and people that are on spring break. Yeah. Um, let's take a concrete example. We'll kind of play with it. And then we'll kind of walk, walk through this, this conversation of what's principled and what's not. Okay. And, and per perhaps this illustrates where the majority is often very off and they know it once principled dissent takes place. Um, so I'll just take the, the latest historical example that I was reading lately, which is Eleanor Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt's, um, the first lady for FDR, one of the top, considered one of the top 10 presidents of all time by historians. Her role is often missing in historical annals. Now, what was interesting about Eleanor was that when FDR was running for governor, it was at that time that she realized, I don't just want to be going to tea parties and having conversations with women about gossip and about social life. I have a lot of social causes that I'm interested in. Particularly, she was interested in, in the downtrodden and people that were low in poverty at the time, which if you know anything about FDR signed the New Deal, this was the, his biggest accomplishments as when he was in office. When FDR became president, Eleanor Roosevelt was the first first lady who said, I'm going to carve a niche for myself that will be a supplement to the, what the White House's power can offer, as opposed to being at the, the, the whim and at the helm of my husband. So she created a column in, if I, if I remember correctly, it is the woman's home companion. And she basically told everyone in the world that if you write a letter to the woman's home companion, I'm going to have a column and I'm going to respond. She got over 300,000 letters that were, that were asking her for advice. And she responded to all of them. Now, whether it was directly or indirectly, it's, it's a fantastic compliment. And what she did was she compiled all that information as data, where this was in some ways a, a snapshot of where people were suffering throughout society all over the United States. She gave this information in condensed form to FDR, and it was from her knowledge that he ended up, he ended up creating the legislation that he was actually interested in as the president, but she did something else as well in terms of her, her principal deviance, which was she held um, meetings with radio correspondents who were the news anchors at the time. And she would only speak to them if they had a woman correspondent on their task force. And so way ahead of its time was that she would not meet with a, a radio media entity unless there was a woman on their task force. So. Let's just, we can, we can both say historically um, at that time, mid 20th century, this is a huge act of insubordination in terms of asking by sex, right. who I'm going to talk to from the media and creating your own column where you're collecting information with white un, under the auspices of the White House. So the majority at that time did not believe that women in office, much less women, much less women in general should be exerting this level of authority 
in the government or in any organization. So she's already showing incredible level of deviance. Mm -hmm. Because of it became so obvious that the information she was collected, collecting was so far surpassing the information that was collected by people around FDR, people realized very quickly they and the majority were in the wrong. She was in the right. And there were, the progress itself proved um, you know, the power and the relevance of her work. And if we deconstruct that, you get to the elements of what makes principled insubordination. So, you know, one of this is, is deviating from the orthodoxy or the mainstream. She did that in spades. The second part is authenticity. These, these behaviors and these norms that she, were just, she was disrupting, it wasn't like someone gave it to her and she was signaling to the world, I'm a feminist. This was Eleanor Roosevelt. Like Eleanor Roosevelt felt, I'm going to be the first one to do this, not because I want to be in the news, because right. women should have a voice in society. Right. So she had the authenticity there. And the third part was the contribution. I can't even say on this podcast the, the letters and the writings that were kind of vitriolic towards her. But anyone that's familiar with Gamergate, anyone's familiar with what it's like to be a woman, especially a black journalist on social media, those are the kind of comments she was receiving in the mid 19th, in the mid 20th century. And this was a, it's one of the, the interesting parts of being a principled rebel. What is a detriment to the individual's well-being is a is an augmentation of the well-being of the group and society. And right. that's contribution. She was willing to sacrifice her own psychological safety because she cared about the welfare of what it was like to be a woman in society. Yeah. And, you know, you you mention lots of different examples in the book and like they they're really, uh, really nice examples. These sort of positive, you know, these positive stories of sort of minority viewpoints um, uh, de developing traction and, and sort of changing the world. Um, lots of examples of that. Um, but I'm curious as to uh, how do you differentiate between sort of these good, authentic uh, motives or, or rather not, not even motives, but these good viewpoints versus bad minority viewpoints? And, and what I mean by that is, so one of the examples you mentioned is Charles Darwin and how he had all these, he, ha he had these ideas uh, that were sort of uh, that were generally not accepted. There was a lot of, of public pushback. No one wanted to accept these scientific theories. And it fit this criteria of, of principled insubordination. But at the same time, the flat earther movement in the US or, or in, the, in, in everywhere else, the, the flat earther movement, right? People that believe that the earth is flat it feels the same way. They authentically think the earth is flat. They're pushing back against a majority viewpoint. They're rebels, right? So like, how do we differentiate between the two? Because they feel the same, right? They, they both feel like examples of minority viewpoints struggling to get traction. Yeah. Great, great example. And there's, um, there's, I mean, there's, there's a lot of interesting qualitative research about these flat earthers. So here, let, let me play with this from two different angles about mm -hmm. flat earthers. So what I'm saying is these are individuals 
that really love human nature and they love science. And somewhere, someplace along the way, things went awry. They didn't get the right teachers. They didn't get the right education. They didn't learn how to kind of sift through science and information. And, and so, so there's, there's a level of backwardness, but you could, we should have compassion is that they really want to understand how the world works. So there are those flat earthers. There's another set of flat earthers that and essentially, if you, you know, if you spend a lot of time reading about kind of how this movement is operating, where there is a financial incentive to be on the fringe, um, these, confer these conferences in terms of collecting advertisements, selling merchandise, and, and gaining a level of, for lack of a better word, there's, there's a level of like, like insider cult status where it's us versus them, and they are, they are, they are financially profiting off of that groupiness that occurs there. Um, people who are at the helm of this movement of the flat earthers, they appear to be very well versed in astro astronomy. Um, you know, Carl Sagan, uh, Richard Feynman, Oppenheimer, they seem to be aware of the world, and there's, there's a level of cynicism. It's not, so you're missing the contribution part. Their, their mission isn't about contributing to an understanding of how the earth operates or how the universe operates. It's more about how can we find a sense of belonging and uniqueness, these two, these two competing psychological needs, a place where we fit in and a place where we're unique and get to showcase that we are originals, we are ahead of the curve. You know, we, you know, we, are, we are the creative ones that are being ignored and persecuted wrongly. Um, this group provides those psychological needs to be satisfied, but they are distorting or intentionally avoiding information that is really readily available, and they're not testing their theories. And in, and in this way, you have so much motivated reasoning. You have, so, you have so, uh, such an unwillingness to realize that the contribution to society or a contribution to knowledge requires that you attend to other knowledge and information in that area. And the lack of that moves you down this dimension of from principle to sort of more reckless insubordination. And, and I think, you know, yeah. you've got a piece, a criteria there. So it's not binary, it's a dimension. The more that you intentionally, intentionally ignore information and selectively selectively focus on low quality information to continue with your movement and your theory, the more you move away from the principle then. And you get closer to the, you know, the January 6th insurrection that happened on the US Capitol, and you get towards you know, what information or evidence could you possibly give to somebody that believes that the current president of the United States did not actually win based on proper voting, voting tactics and that they should that actually we should continue searching further and further despite you know level and level of evidence that throws counter to your theory if you're if you have unfalsifiable beliefs and or you're unwilling to test them you're moving further and further away from the principled part to the you know to the to the um to the stubborn reckless and kind of um you know more dangerous kind of porn insubordination yeah, it's, it, it kind of speaks to the, you know, in, in sort of uh, the, the research on grit. Um, the, a big part of the research on grit is knowing when to quit something. 
and it's it, you know grit has all this 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 attribute of being able to have a passion and motivation to achieve your long-term goals it's it's very positive move forward strive but but a big part of that is knowing when to quit and it sounds like what you're what you're saying is that while these these uh these movements flat earthers or or even in general sort of conspiracy theory movements their desire and and their their attitudes about rebelling aren't necessarily the problem it's just sort of how they establish their criteria for success is that was that kind of what you're saying yeah or or yeah. their information gathering right how do they siphon what information is accepted and what information is rejected and Ryan we could play with we could play with a you know a, a less known kind of fringe movement, which is, and this, this was started with Philip Dick back in the 1960s with the science fiction novels, who probably best known for Minority Report because um, it was turned into a movie with Will Smith. And he, he has one of his novels, he talks about where neurodiversity such as Asperger's or, or um, you know, anything on the autism spectrum that this might be an early harbinger of another level of mutation that's evolution of the human species, where your emotions don't get in the way of logic and decision-making. Um, it's not a conspiracy. Um, it's interesting. It's a dissenting view about thinking about neurodiversity. It's, it's not a mainstream and orthodox view. And I would say is that there's a very principled exploration of, are we thinking about this too simplistically right now? And in this way, this deviation from mainstream thinking, I would view it as based on the lack of evidence that we have right now, is that it's most of it is incredibly principled. It's not to elevate them and say everyone is lesser than and should be given you know less cash, prizes, promotions, and jobs. It's saying that we might be misunderstanding a good portion of society. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just because a theory hasn't been proven that you're unprincipled. It's the way that you go about acquiring information and considering how you can test and falsify your information. How important is uh, the speed of belief change? Or, or maybe, maybe I should say what's uh, the expectation of how quickly beliefs should change? So I have lots of progressive friends, and sometimes I get the feeling that they're extremely frustrated with how how difficult it is to to change the minds of people on the other side of the political spectrum and it it always seems to me as though their expectation is that that you can sort of uh, drown someone in facts and then you have now achieved you've achieved a positive outcome um in terms of what you've learned about successful insubordination, um, does can you achieve uh, shifts in the majority beliefs uh, quickly, or is is it does it have to be slow? I am so glad that you're saying this because if there's one of many reasons that I wrote this book, it was social activists today have a lot to learn from the science and earlier generations of social activists. Um, in a second, I'll get to the gay liberation movement in the 1970s, I think is the greatest exemplar of a social movement in perhaps the course of human history. Um, the speed to which you moved, I'm just jumping right into it. The speed to which you moved from 1971, where 
homosexuality was the number one listed psychiatric disorder under the sexual disorder category to 2000, 2020, where gay marriage is now, is now legal across the United States. That period of time might feel like forever because it's, it's a human being's lifetime. But in terms of major social changes in society, thinking a, a window of, of 50 years, I mean, it is incredibly fast. And I think that modern social activists, whether it's climate change, whether it's sex, gender, or race, there's a great deal to learn about this that a, a few things. One is that be careful about obsessing about the speed to which you change people's minds because it's a bad proxy for that you're actually gonna make a durable influence in altering society. The second one about this is the, the early indicator that people's minds are going to be changed is not direct change, but it's indirect change. And I'll give you a concrete example about this. Um, this is research by William Crano, where he shows that if you get, try to get people to change their minds about guns, you know, ardent people, ardent fans of guns who live in hunting culture, that's how they were raised, um, more like in the Midwest than on the East and West coasts of the United States. Uh, these are beliefs that tend to be that guns are, are a fundamental value of being a citizen of the United States. It's they're strong, they're certain, and they're, they're relatively low in malleability. When you try to convince someone because you know someone that was harmed or murdered with a weapon, or there was a recent, you know, recent shooting in the school, Sandy Hook, I mean, the idea that that didn't change the, the, the clear behavioral evidence of the dangers of guns did not move the needle on gun laws tells you something about logic alone is insufficient and the time frame alone can't be in a short period where you can expect change. What you often see when people change their minds is they might change their view to being more liberal or more, or more open-minded about immigration, which is an adjacent issue that someone, someone that believes in gun ownership and you can carry a concealed weapon into a mall tends to be having that belief is highly correlated with very non-permeable boundaries between countries for immigration. Right. Right. And so if you get, if you try to convince someone's views on guns to change, you might not have changed their views there, but they might move the needle on immigration It happens there. So we have to be very careful, carefully and nuanced in our observations about where people are modifying their thinking and their emotions about an issue and not being hyper-focused on just the exact precise thing that we want people to change their mind on now. So uh, what, what would you say is the recipe for a, a minority group, whether it's race, gender, etc. What is the recipe or, or rather the playbook for, you know, the things they need to keep in mind to have a successful movement? Well, there's, there's a large number of steps. So we, I mean, we can't go through mm -hmm. all. Right, right. But what one thing that I, I think is often missing in these movements, you saw with Occupy Wall Street, you saw it with Black Lives Matter, um, and you're seeing a lot with um, a lot of the, you know, the, the movements of diversity in, in the corporate world and in academia. And some of, some of the reasons that they're not getting traction is because 
they're not attending to people outside of their belief system as people worthy of having a viewpoint that's considered. And let, let me kind of like make this like make this a little bit more concrete. If you want if you want to increase people's propensity to believe that you should have more members of underrepresented groups in an organization, um, in the corporate suite, CEO, chief technology officer, um, you can comply people to do that. You could demand that, this, that we're just going to follow this rule, but you're not converting people's belief systems by doing that. And this, most organizations are using a power hold, which is we're going to force people to have this belief. We're going to engage in this practice, but we're not going to try to change anyone's minds on this. That, leads, that often leads to short-term non-durable changes, where as soon as those individuals that were hired into those positions, as you hire the next batch of individuals when they retire or they switch to another organization, you rarely are gonna, you're rarely gonna see the, 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 the succession where that diversity will still stick because, because you haven't changed people's minds on the view. The way to do this is, is pass the test of, are you an insider that understands the current majority that you're trying to infiltrate. And this is where current activists are missing this, is that there are a number of people in these organizations who have you know, lived different lives, brought up on different value systems, educated with different books, and they hold very stubbornly to kind of their current beliefs. You have to make an attempt to understand where they are. And by understanding what are the core values underneath, why they believe that the current system works as is and shouldn't be modified. And from that standpoint, there you point out, here's where the benefits are of having someone come in that doesn't look like you. And so you can imagine, and so you can present to them, this is plenty of data, not, so the data on, the data showing that demographic diversity increases performance and creative thinking is actually very unimpressive. It's a very small correlation between, with, with demographic diversity and performance. Right. But there, there are interesting things that increase the propensity for having a larger concentration of non-white people in an organization where an organization is more creative and performs better. One of them happens to be is you allow people to productively disagree with each other and does not lead to relationship conflicts. It doesn't lead to backstabbing. It doesn't lead to gossip. It leads people to think that there are alternative ways of working on a task and figuring out which is the best way of doing things. If you create a culture where the norm is, I want people to think independently before we get your, we want, I want to get your views independently. I want to anonymize it so people don't know who had which views. We want to work with the content that's there and critically think about the costs and benefits of those views. And our goal is not to have harmony or positivity. Our goal is to come up with the best solution, thinking of what's the exact outcome we want to focus on. These elements are often missing from these conversations on diversity. And if it was brought in, I think you would change more people's minds and the, 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 whatever changes occur, they might be slower, but they'll be more durable. And I think if you really ask people, do you want change that's fleeting and quick, or do you want change that's durable that might take longer? I think most people would choose the latter, but we're really not having that sophisticated discussion. Yeah, and it seems as though the biggest barrier has to do with 
that moment when the when a, a, a minority idea labels the majority as sort of enemy or evil, right? Because most, I think most, most people, even on the, the far left of the spectrum, far right politically, I think most people aren't, they don't mind having conversations and disagreements with big chunks of people. But there's this switch that happens when people have labeled someone as they're they are far gone they're the enemy we are at war with them and it kind of shuts the door to all of these what i would say is like effective strategies to gaining traction of a, of a minority viewpoint or idea is is there a strategy for cracking that for 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 uh you know sort of resetting people's brains and and, and avoiding these sort of uh binary labels as as enemy and other yeah, well, I mean, there's there's seeds in what you just said about kind of just taking a uh, a dichotomous approach to thinking. Binary thinking alone is problematic. But just to go back a step to what you said, and I'm glad you said the this this notion of othering people. You know, when you've got Amy Edmondson's work on psychological safety, and it talks about you know the, the elements of an effective workplace are that you can disagree, and we will separate you the messenger from you the message and we're going to have a place where we're going to allow people to be vulnerable and if you express things that 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 are emotionally challenging for you or express your adversity or you express the fact that you previously suffered from depression and you're currently about you know and you know in the early stages of of a possibly another episode or you're having trouble balancing parenting with work if you were to reveal these things in a psychologically safe workplace, it's not kept, kept in a file drawer and used against you at a later date. There are cues of belonging in a psychologically safe culture where if someone speaks, people put down their smartphones, they make eye contact, they're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt regardless of what you've said previously. So it's almost like a reset for each time that you talk as opposed to labeling, oh, here comes the guy that's always gonna say, you know, be the contrarian in the room. Well, if you have that attitude of labeling them as a contrarian, you're going to miss when they actually are knowledgeable and and pro-social contributors with good ideas to the group. What's missing in the conversation about psychological safety as an avenue to creating constructive dissent in a room is there has to be a reservoir of minority dissent so that you can so that you have a, a number of creative ideas to work with in the first place. So if you don't have, a, the greatest predictor of creative decision-making and creative solutions is the number of ideas that are present. And so if you, if you only bring people in that are ideologically similar or have similar ideas about an issue, you decrease the number of ideas to work with to derive whatever solution or whatever decision that you're thinking of. And this is the value of having dissent. So it's in some ways, it's like a multiplication problem. You need psychological safety times the availability of regular doses of dissent. And only then do you get to the creative solutions where diversity then leads to creative performance that happens there. One of the other issues, it seems to me, is that sometimes it's unclear who 
the rebel is in a situation. So for example, um, well, let's take let's well let's take in the U.S. the language debate in terms of um, whether it's uh, race, gender, something like that. There are individuals that think we need to aggressively modify our language to be more respectful of of certain groups, right? Uh, I'm intentionally leaving out specifics so that we can talk about like the the generic issue. Um, so some people might consider themselves the rebel for standing up for marginalized groups. And that that's fine. It, it sort of adds up. It's a reasonable narrative. And then on the, on the other end of the spectrum, you have individuals pushing back and saying like, you know, maybe we're going too far with how much focus we're putting on language and how much focus we're putting on being politically correct. And that also kind of sounds like a rebel, like they're pushing back against uh, this movement of, 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 of policing language. So how do you tell if you're, if you're a rebel, if you could make a plausible story that both sides are, are taking the rebel standpoint? It is an incredible sociological uh, observation that you have here, Ryan. Right. In some ways, if you want to simplify it with the way that it's spoken about in public conversations, you have the woke and the anti-woke and both groups think that they are to some degree like they are they are the principled rebels in the situation. Right. Right. And then to some degree, I realize this is not the answer to your question. Um, an, an interesting thing happened with both of these groups of dissenters from the mainstream where a concentrated other group is formed of saying, both of these groups might be lacking sufficient compassion about that there are individuals that are behind these issues that we're talking about. And this seems to be the interesting rising movement that there's not that much discussion about because it's not neatly fit into the good gals and guys and the bad guys and gals. It's, it's, it's the, this group that's saying there are interesting points being made, but I see a lack of empathy and compassion that there are individuals especially younger individuals where their real lives are at stake here so um i just wanted to kind of bring up of it's not that there's three groups you know just it's just again it's a continuum that we were just kind of arbitrarily breaking into parts um and and i'm actually really heartened to see that these compassionate people are starting on the rise of mm -hmm. that our adversaries to this, and this is you know i really feel strongly about this, that the way to approach these productive conflicts is that our adversaries today, you should be viewing them as potential allies later on, even if your side ends up winning. Like you, sh you shouldn't be in the place of, of ever sending an email to anyone on the other side that says, I won, exclamation point, exclamation <laughs> point. Right. I think of John Rawls, he talks about the veil of ignorance and his philosophical framework, I think fits nicely here which is you should imagine every issue that you have with the mainstream current systems that are in place, current organizations where you see problems, dysfunctions, and stagnation everywhere, every, every norm, every behavior, every rule. You should be thinking, when you think about solutions, you should imagine that, that you don't know what your, your position is going to be in the social network. 
after this decision is made. So it's randomized. And, you know, Ryan, you and I could end up being interns who are underpaid, underappreciated, constantly belittled, constantly bullied, as opposed to our positions now where I have tenure and I'm a full professor at a university. And when you, when you use this veil of ignorance in helping you make decisions, it makes you think not just about where your psychological conflict of interest is. You're thinking about all the different players and positions that are possible where you could be randomly assigned to. And I think if we start our discussions from this place, from this framework, we would be a lot more compassionate from the get-go. You would be thinking about the college students in your classes, for me, and for if you're working in an organization, you'd be thinking about all the people that don't have the reserved parking place, parking spots and the six-figure salaries of saying, if I could be randomly assigned to their role, would I be content that my health insurance would be taken away the second that I actually speak up and say, I'm not happy with what we're doing in the workplace. I think there's some, un, there's some ethical violations here. The idea that my, I, no, I no longer have health insurance for if I or any of our family members get cancer would make you think much more carefully about the bizarre idea that our currently assigned jobs, keeping them, no matter how problematic they are, is the determinant of whether you're going to be physically healthy. You would act differently from the, from the standpoint of the veil of ignorance. So with this framework, you can envision that both sides are principled rebels. The mainstream is not actually an individual. The mainstream right. is the existing practices that are in place and you're both fighting against it. So, mm -hmm. in, in, and when the, so here's where it gets interesting and this is debatable and I definitely could be wrong here. And by the time this is posted, I could be wrong. When the incentives shift such that your speech or your belief or your thought on a topic is considered so abysmal and so problematic that you could immediately lose status in the community that you're in. In that case, you are now in the minority state. And so it's not, we can't make a, a broad stroke comment that those people that are asking for an alteration in language because it doesn't properly address all of the groups that are currently being acknowledged that, that have not been acknowledged in the past. Um, we can't say it at a broad level automatically that they're all in the minority and those are those are the rebels because in some in as this starts to gain traction in certain organizations they have the power to actually decide the fate of someone's employment and their someone's health because their health insurance is tied to their employment and so we have to be looking a little bit more molecularly at particular organizations we can't just say colleges we have to look at individual colleges. And I don't know the answer because I haven't explored much the depth of the rules and the norms in individual colleges, except for my own. And I think this would require us to actually be a little bit more intellectually humble and say, I, I don't know what happens in your individual organization. So I can't say who are the principled rebels and who's the mainstream, but let's just say this, it is shifting quickly and that's not to say well, this is this is no bearing on who's wrong or right. It's that we have to be very carefully aware of these power structures are not in cement; they're really in clay, and they are constantly being manipulated and modified. And right now, as an academic scholar, 
if I was to go onto a panel, the, the big smoking gun that someone could throw is to call someone a racist right now. That would be the end of my career that has happened there. So the power has shifted in that particular situation. And it's worth just having a candid conversation of where the power is, in what situations, um, and, then, and then we can start making changes because in the classroom, in terms of teaching evaluations, if you are non-white and non-male and the teaching evaluations are anonymous, the people that don't have power are people that are racial and gender minorities. But as soon as you have a live panel where you people are on stage, it shifts and the power goes to people, the power goes to people that are racial minorities and gender and sexual minorities. To wrap up, I want to finish talking about uh, one of the uh, I want uh, one of the more what I thought was the more one of the more profound parts of the book, which is this idea of the rebels' discontent, which is what happens when a minority viewpoint gains traction and ultimately becomes the new norm. And that there's this dynamic between rebels that what you call the rebels that won and the powerless former majority. Uh, what is the take home point from this from this principle that you discuss? Yeah, I'm glad we're ending on this. And I think it's this is the one that I really want people to think about, whether you are trying to trying to enact change, whether you are a champion of someone trying to enact change or whether you're on the sidelines and you have an opportunity to do a thumbs up or thumbs down to whether to keep things the way they are or make modifications of things. Is there are a number of constituents for every time we decide whether to make modifications or we decide we're going to double down and keep with things the way they are. And we have to remember that every one of those constituents is a potential future collaborator and co-creator in what we're doing. And we have to be very careful about dividing the world into people that are good and evil, as opposed to individuals with different values and different stakes and different perspectives going into an issue. And one of the problems over the course of human history, this starts, you know, for me, this starts with thinking about the French Revolution, is that once you storm the castle and you gain the power, um, you don't want to replicate the French Revolution and start beheading everyone who didn't agree with you before you started the, you know, before you started the fight. And we, there's a, there is a metaphorical beheading that often occurs as people gain traction and they win, which is they take such schadenfreude pleasure in the pain and suffering of people that were obstacles in the past. And I think we have to have a little bit more equanimity and a little bit more identity attachment to the issues that we're focused on from the perspective of the individuals that lose in whatever issue or election that we're involved in, they're not going anywhere. And, and, and one way where I, where I saw this happen in a problematic way in society was when Trump was elected and there was a big outroar, you know, across the country, you know, 50% for, 50% against, 50% of the nation was disagreeing with you vehemently on this election. And, you know, I took a stand of that. Where do you want the people to go that disagree with you on this topic? So for me, as someone that's, 
you know, a representative of, of the educational system, if you strongly believe that someone like Trump is not a problem to the democracy and the nature of a healthy civil society, I don't want you to be ostracized. I want you in an educational system as quick as humanly possible to be around diverse individuals, hear their perspectives, read books by authors that they espouse, and have conversations where you can't control the narrative because there are multiple views and you have in that room and you have to look people in the eye and see the tears, the emotion, the hands that are shaking because it causes so much anxiety and unrest that happens there. And when you have those conversations, um, that's when the great opportunity changes. And the idea that you would ostracize individuals and let them radicalize further is exactly kind of you know, the concrete issue that I wanted to tackle from science that this only leads to a destabilization society, not a more coherent and stable society. I couldn't agree more. Uh, we are out of time. Uh, thank you so much. Once again, uh, the name of the book is The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Uh, Todd Kasdan, thank you so much for being on today. Man, you ask really tough questions, and I can't think of the last time I had to think this much in a podcast. So thank you. For more on Todd, visit toddkashden.com. That's T-O-D-D-K-A-S-H. D-A-N.com. Or check out his newest book, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively, wherever books are sold. Be sure to follow the Why Do We Do That Facebook page for updates and additional content. Don't forget to rate and write a review on iTunes. Follow on Instagram at Why Do We Do That Podcast or Twitter at WDWDTPod. And as always, feel free to email me at why do we do that podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Dr. Ryan Moyer, hoping you found some answers to the question, why do we do that? <laughs>